If you guys have a Bible, grab it and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. I would encourage you, uh, and I'll tell you why in just a second. If you have a physical Bible, grab the physical Bible, because there's some things in the physical Bible or in the, if it's a digital, phys, digital physical Bible, it, that, that count, I'll count it. For today, it counts. Uh, but some things there that you won't see on the text that I read from the screen um, we're going to do two things today. Thing one, I'm going to preach a sermon on Hebrews chapter one with the goal of helping us see how not just to know God's word, but live our lives according to the way God's word teaches. But two, I wanted to weave in, and, and when the preaching team kind of wrote this sermon series months ago, one of the goals we had was to also teach us how to study God's Word on our own. And I'm going to try to do both of those things in one sermon. You can tell me afterwards how it goes. <laughs> but to start, um, I was cleaning out my desk. I do it every few years. <laughs> and sure enough, I found a letter in the desk, and the, the person who wrote it put their address, but not their name, and I wasn't, the address didn't make it abundantly clear. And I pulled the letter out. Uh, and the date, March 22nd, 2020. A happy date to remember. Ah, oh, sweet memories. And the letter opens. It says, old friend, I hope this letter finds you and finds you well. And then I read the rest of the letter. And at the end, it says... Uh, I miss you, old friend. Be well. And they don't sign it. And I think to myself, what do you do write a letter and you don't sign it? However, it just so happens that there's one and only one person who addresses me as old friend. It turns out it's a friend of mine who I have known longer than any other friend. We met in sixth grade band. He played the trombone. I played percussion. Dan Fulton, uh, he, and, and then not only is he the only one that calls me old friend, but let's be honest, his horrible handwriting, he's a doctor, sorry doctors, his horrible handwriting made it abundantly clear, and that first sentence, I hope this letter finds you and finds you well, he really likes turns of phrase like that. So even though my friend didn't sign his letter anywhere, it wasn't hard for me, having read the letter, to know exactly who wrote it, and not only who wrote it, but to know some things about the person that wrote it. If you were to pick up your Bibles and look at just the first verses of every book of the New Testament, almost all of them would start by the author telling you who's writing the letter. Hey, this is Paul, and I'm writing you this letter. Hey, this is Peter, and I'm writing you this letter. Hey, this is John, and I'm writing you this letter. But as you'll see, the beginning of the letter to the Hebrews, the author doesn't tell us anything about who they are. However, I'm quite certain that the first congregation, the first audience, it was probably a church meeting somewhere around the city of Rome, the capital of the ancient Roman Empire, when they got it, it's almost certain that upon simply reading the words, they would have known the author well, even though we don't know them that well. 
So I'm going to read all of chapter 1. So just to let you know, I'm going to read all of chapter 1. It's, it's, a, it's a few slides worth of reading. Um, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about some things we know about this author because of how they wrote that probably the first congregation would have known about this author. And then we're going to dive into uh, preaching through the whole text. But here's why I want you to hold your physical Bibles. Why we read, in my Bible, there's like a ton of tiny little superscript letters all over the place. And one of the places that you're always going to find a tiny little superscript letter uh, yeah, you got you to use the voice, otherwise you don't know what I'm talking about. Is any time, if you're looking in your Bibles, a lot of the words here are like indented, right? It's not just like the full line, it's indented. Anytime you see indented words, that's a quotation from the Old Testament. And the tiny little superscript letter tells you where in the Old Testament that quotation is coming from. And I want you to pay attention to that because we're going to look a little more closely at that later. That's, that's the Bible study thing that we're going to be talking about is superscript letters. Okay. Okay, we talked about my friend's letter. We talked about what we're, we we're going to talk about. Now let's talk about it. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 1. You can look in your Bibles or the words are on the screen. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. 
To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? There's some chapters in Scripture where you, will, you can read them and you get to the end and you have this nice like heartwarming feeling, right? Jesus is like, I am the good shepherd and if one of my sheep is lost, I'm going to go find that one sheep. And you're like, oh, that's so nice. For me, when I read this, I get to the end and especially that last sentence. I mean, that last sentence, just bam. What in the world are you talking about? Like, I, I find myself reading this and thinking, okay, if this is a pastor right into their church, clearly the things on the hearts and the minds of his congregation are not the same as the things on the hearts and the minds of this congregation. I have not once had somebody come to me in my office or write an email or make a phone call and be like, Pastor, I just need to know what is the relationship between Jesus and the angels. I just, I'm up at night worrying. I'm sick with worry about this. Nobody asked me that. But clearly, this author decided not only was it important, but it was the very first thing he was going to talk about over and over and over was the relationship between Jesus and angels. So, in order to answer the question of why, let's answer the question first, what are some things that we know about this author? We don't know their name. We've got a few good guesses. Lots of people have spent lots of time arguing why they think it was this person or that person or that person. We'll never know for sure. But there are some things that we do know, even if we don't know their name. I want to consider four things about the author. First of all, the author writes with, big words here, apostolic authority. Every single book in the New Testament is written on the belief that these words represent the teaching of Jesus himself. If an author writes something and we don't believe that that author is representing the teaching of Jesus himself, it doesn't make it into the Bible. And the way that works is Jesus lived on earth and he had 12 disciples, also known as apostles. He lived for three years teaching, traveling with those 12 apostles so that they became experts in who Jesus is and what Jesus taught. Therefore, the 12 apostles or people who write with direct contact to and information and teaching by the apostles, those are the only people whose teachings make it into our New Testament. So whoever the author of Hebrews is, they are writing as somebody whose teaching is based on a direct connection to the teaching of Jesus himself through Jesus's apostles. We study our Bibles, we read what's in the Bible because we believe everything in the New Testament contains apostolic authority. Second, like we said, the author is most likely a pastor of a local church and is writing with pastoral intent. Everything in here, his congregation would have known about and cared about and thought about and it would have mattered to them. So if we read something like we just did about angels and we're like, I don't know if I care about that. The process is, why did they care about it and what made it important to them? What's the principle behind it? 
And how can I take that principle and apply it to my own life? Next, um, we're talking about how the pastor writes in a Jewish content. We already saw the pastor in just chapter 1 quoted many different Old Testament verses. And they didn't say, just so you know, I'm quoting this part of Scripture and you can go find it here. He just sort of drops it in there. And he assumes that his congregation knows exactly what he is preaching. Last but not least, the author preaches every single chapter is, uh, tells us that the author is Christocentric. The author places Christ, who is Jesus, at the center of everything he talks about. Those are some things we can know about who the author is. Those are some things we can know about what it looks like for us to properly understand these words so that we can apply them to our lives as well. I want to jump ahead a couple slides too. There's three things that I'm going to talk about from the text then today. Angels, speaking and listening, temporary and permanent. These are the three big ideas that I think come out to me when I study this text. The first of which we have to talk about kind of the big elephant in the room, the angels. Why in the world does he talk so much about angels? That is the question I want to discuss first. So I went round and round about how to get into this, um, but I'm just going to start at the beginning. Why would an ancient Jewish Christian congregation care a lot about the authority of angels? And here's my best attempt to give a, a short, concise answer. For the ancient Jews, the pinnacle of God's communication to his people, the most important moment of it all, was when God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. And God gave Moses what we now call the Pentateuch, or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. If you go back and you read that whole story of God on Mount Sinai, there's this interesting thing where the presence of God and the angel of God are used almost interchangeably. And so it's like God speaks to Moses through an angel. Except it's not just an angel, it's like God himself. Except it can't be God himself because that'd be too awesome, so it's an angel. But they're very close to one another. So there's this idea that the most important communication of God to Moses on Sinai happened through an angel. So listening to the words of angels is really, really important. So to this congregation, the, a, the voice of an angel is the most important voice out there. And Jesus came along and said, yep, yep, I get it, yep. The voice of the angel really matters because the Torah is really important and an angel spoke it. But guess what? Jesus is now God's final word. And the author of Hebrews says, the voice of Jesus is more important than even the voice of the angels, which to us might be like, yeah, I picked that up in Sunday school when I was in preschool. But to them would have been like, mm, whoa, like let's pump the brakes here a little bit. You're getting me a little uncomfortable. And so the pastor's writing this letter and he's, he's basically wanting to be like, are you putting God's old communication Placing it as more important than God's final word through his son? 
Which means the question for you and I isn't so much about angels, because again, I don't think we're really worrying about that, but rather the question is, do you consider the teaching of Jesus to be more important than any other voice, teaching, authority in your life? If you were to ask any of the staff members, um, they would tell you, there's sort of this little joke, um, I have every couple months uh, a new crush. I like to call it my new author crush. Whatever author I happen to really fall in love with, I can't just read one of their books. I need to read all of their books. And not only do I need to read all of their books, but I need to tell other people the really interesting things that I'm reading in the books of my favorite author crush. And it comes up at staff meetings, and it sometimes comes up in sermons. Here's the risk that I run. I think a lot of the authors that I read teach me things that really help me understand Scripture better, understand God's voice better. But I know that there's always a danger of me becoming more interested in the words of my favorite author than I am interested in the words of God himself revealed to me in Scripture. What about you? Are there any voices in your life that if you're honest, you're actually more interested in the next thing that blogger, that author, that social media influencer, that commentator, you're more interested in the next words they're going to speak than you are interested in the eternal words that God has already spoken. One of the ways we know this is what's going on here in the text is because the author is quoting scripture to his congregation over, over, and over again. And he's quoting it with the assumption that the congregation is already deeply familiar with this text. And I want to highlight one little bit of it that's a, a bit of a bunny trail, but I think it's valuable to know about scripture and how it was compiled. Um, the, the one that jumped out to me was uh, verse 6. When God, it says, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, quote, let all God's angels worship him. Then my text has a small letter C right next to it. So I go down to the bottom of the page and I go C. Okay, it says Deuteronomy 32, 43. Okay, something that I do whenever I write my sermons is I look up most, I probably can't say every, I look up most of the references and I go back and I read wherever it came from. So I go back and I read Deuteronomy 32, 43. I go, okay, author of Hebrews said, let all God's angels worship him. Deuteronomy 32, 43 says, rejoice you nations with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. Okay, I'm going to look back at the footnote. And I'm going to see, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't just say Deuteronomy. It then says, in brackets, see dead, yes, yeah, some of you are reading the same thing, see dead sea scrolls and Septuagint. Everybody say Septuagint. Uh, oh, it's one of my favorite words. The Septuagint was a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek that was completed not long before the end of BC and the beginning of AD. And most likely, 
this Jewish congregation read the Septuagint as their scripture. Now, Septuagint is great, but throughout history, some of the details of, of what gets into the printed Bible, and we know that the printed Bible didn't actually happen until whenever the printing presses were made later. That's the date, later. Um, some people who are critical of Scripture, they'll be like, they'll, they'll look at something like this and they'll be like, see, you can't trust the Bible. There's so many different versions and there's so many different, you know, it says different things and it's contradictory. Mm, here's what I'll say. We have thousands and thousands of documents that all get combined to give us the most reliable possible version of Scripture. That if it's not exactly what the very first author wrote down with their own hand the first time, man, is it really close. And yes, at some points in the history of God's people, with the Septuagint of the Old Testament, with parts of the New Testament, there are small differences. Differences like... The Septuagint says angels. Our Bible does not say angels. None of those differences make any significant theological impact on our understanding of who God is, what God does for his people and through his people in this world. Rather, they make little differences. The point of all that being, when he quoted the Septuagint to his congregation, they knew exactly what he was quoting to them. It makes me wonder... When I quote scripture, or when we quote scripture to one another, how readily do we know exactly what we're referencing to one another? This congregation's life evidences that they took the voice of God so seriously that they had huge parts of it committed to memory. And that was one of the ways that they demonstrated in their lives that nothing, go to the next slide, nothing comes before the words of Christ. So let me ask you, if we're going to try to live Jesus' first kinds of lives, do, does, the, does our knowledge of the words of Christ passed down to us through Scripture, does our knowledge of that evidence that we really do put Christ first? Second thing I want to talk about, speaking and listening. Whether it is God speaking to Moses through an angel on Sinai, whether it is Jesus speaking directly to his disciples, whether it is through God's Holy Spirit and through the Scripture, God speaking those words to us today, here's what we know. From time past, right now in present, and for all time in the future, God is speaking. We serve and worship a God who speaks who communicates, who has something to say to his people. It causes me to think of times when one of my parents would say to me, Carl, I'm speaking to you. Anybody here had a parent? Ever say, I'm, I'm, are you listening when I'm talking to you right now? Yeah, a couple of you just said, no, my mom and dad never said that to me. I was always perfectly compliant. <laughs> if we worship a God who is speaking, that makes us wonder, um, you live every day as someone being spoken to. It makes me wonder, uh, are we listening? But I was thinking about this because I was like, okay, the author of Hebrews said, in the past, God spoke to the ancestors through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken through his son, Jesus. And the son is the exact 
He's the radiance of God, the exact representation. And in a sense, Jesus is the final word of God. If Jesus is the exact representation of God, he, he perfects and completes and fulfills all that God has said. Why does God need to keep speaking? Here's the image that kind of came to my mind. Um, the other day I had a child. I mean, I, okay, I have a child. One of my children, the other day one of my children was instructed to go and clean their room. This particular child resists the idea of a clean room. The child came down to me and said, Dad, my room's clean. I said, great, let's go check it out. So I went up and I opened the door and I looked in the room and you know what I saw? Not a clean room. And so we entered into a discussion about the definition of a clean room. And we explored things like objects on the floor, like clothing in the closet on the floor versus hung on hangers. We, we discussed all sorts of different things about the definition of a clean room. But after a while, I said, beloved child of mine, this is the definition of a clean room. When I come back, if I find anything on the floor, I will assume you want me to keep that and get rid of it for you. This conversation is over. I said it in a very loving way so that my child knew I loved them, but I was clear, conversation over. The kid comes back to me in just a few minutes and says, Dad, can you come help me figure out how to organize all my toys? Because I think that's part of the problem. I just don't know where to put it. I said, oh, of course I can. So I came back, and we sat on the floor, and we discussed toy organization strategy. And it was awesome. We had a lovely conversation sitting right there. I had just said, the conversation's done. This is my final word. No more conversation. And then I'd sat down, and I'd had a lovely conversation with this child. I think of God's word kind of like that. When Jesus came, that was God's final word. There was nothing left to be said about who God is, about the kind of love God has for all humanity, and about the invitation God makes to all humanity to live in that love through the forgiveness of sins bought for us by Christ. There's nothing left to be said. But if we come up to God and say, hey God, will you help me think about how to live that in my life? You better believe he would love to talk to you all day, every day. His final word has been spoken, and therefore he wants to speak with us each and every day about how to live in that word. If I use the analogy of a parent speaking to their child, I can't help but think how many of us might have some form of baggage in our memories about how our own parents spoke to us. I pray I am not creating baggage for my own children, but I fear that that might be happening no matter what, right? Maybe the voice of our parents is more stern in our minds than we would like to picture the voice of God. So the next thing I'll point out is that in all the texts that the author to Hebrews quotes, uh, a few of them that jumped out to me is if you look at each one of the superscript references, you'll see Psalm 102, 103, and 104 all referenced. And each of those paint a picture of God's deep 
love and compassion for his children. So while we think about the voice of God speaking to us and wonder whether or not we're listening, we have to remember that that voice is the voice of a God who speaks as somebody deeply concerned about the well-being, compassionately inclined towards his people. Just as one example, here's a description of God's voice. Praise the Lord, my soul, and my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord and forget not all of God's benefits, who forgives your sins, heals your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, and crowns you with love and compassion. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed, as a father has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. God speaking, are we putting that voice ahead of every other voice in our lives? When God speaks, it is as a father whose compassion is unparalleled. If God's speaking, are we listening? The last thought I want to explore is the idea of temporary and permanent. Uh, The last part of the Hebrews text that I'll mention is uh, verses 10 through 12, which say, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. And he says it three times over. Pretty much everything is going to perish, but you, God, and your word is going to remain. It's eternal. It's unending. So you could summarize it, and there's other parts in Scripture that say the same thing. The author is trying to make the point, everything is temporary. And if we're following this theme of the importance of the voice of God, then the clear implication is every voice in this world is temporary. Take the most famous author, speaker from any category throughout history. The vast majority of what they said has been long forgotten. And that's even the most famous people. Everybody else just one step down, everything that they're said, that they have ever said, is quickly forgotten, not long after they go. But if every voice in this world is temporary, the voice of God is the one that is eternal. And that's just one more reason to put it first in our lives. But then I took my own advice, and I looked at the little superscript letter at the end of chapter 12, and it's the letter F in my Bible, in case you were wondering. And it says that's from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. So I went and I read all of Psalm 102. And what jumped out to me was the heading at the beginning of Psalm 102, which said, A prayer of an afflicted person who has grown weak and pours out a lament before the Lord. The background of Psalm 102 is the reality that as people who are trying to listen to God's voice and make it first in our lives, one of the greatest greatest challenges to that is the reality of suffering in our world. It can be really hard to trust or to keep seeking God's voice when we look at the amount of pain we're feeling and we just go, God, if you're speaking, how come I don't feel that comfort right now? And so the point 
of this quotation is not so much that God's voice is eternal and all else fall away, but rather it's a reminder that all suffering, no matter how hard it is, and no matter how understandable it might be that that suffering might cause us to stop listening to God's voice, all suffering is temporary. But God's compassion is forever. God speaks to us as the voice of a father who has the most imaginable compassion. And sometimes what we see and experience in our lives doesn't feel like it matches what we would believe is true if God really is that compassionate. But the scripture says to us time and time again, we can know for sure that God's compassion never fails. My daughter Naomi came to me one day and she had a splinter in her hand. Now, I am from northern Minnesota, which means I am a splinter expert. My childhood was filled with high volumes of splinters, splinters of all varieties, tiny little splinters that just barely poke into the skin, very large splinters that even when you pull them out, leave baby splinters still embedded. And now since you pulled it out, they're going the other direction. And, <sighs> and I looked at my daughter's hand and I said, that is a bad splinter. Now, one of the other kids came along and said, Dad, can't we just put some ice, like ice cube on it, put a Band-Aid on it, leave it for a couple days because sometimes it works it out? You can do that with some splinters, right? It just works it out. A little bit of antibiotic ointment on there. Everything's fine. I am a splinter expert. That splinter is definitely not coming out on its own. Naomi, do you know what we need to do? <laughs> I'm going to need to remove some skin off your hand so that I can get that splinter out. Naomi, do you remember when your thumb got infected a year ago and it swelled to be the size of a plum and it looked kind of like a plum? Yeah, I remember. Do you remember how much that hurt, Naomi? Yeah, I remember. Do you want your hand to hurt like that, Naomi? No, I don't want my hand to hurt. Naomi, because I love you, I am going to pin your hand down to the countertop and I am going to cut part of the skin off of your hand and then I'm going to remove that splinter from your hand. And I'm going to do it because I'm compassionate and loving and I want to remove what I know will be more pain next week even though it feels like a lot of pain here. I'm sure we could find some flaws in the comparison between that story and the compassion of our God, but what I do know for certain is this. God, our Father, looks at us and speaks to us with compassion. And sometimes we might not understand it, but the evidence of Scripture, and especially the evidence of Jesus Christ himself, is such that God's compassion, so much that he would see our sin and take it upon himself, his compassion, is unending and uncomparable in this world. God is a God who speaks. Are we putting his voice ahead of every other voice in this world? If God is a God who always has been and is and always will be speaking, are we listening? One of the many reasons we should listen is because we can know that the voice of God is the voice of greatest compassion. 
no matter how much suffering we might be going through, just like the church that this letter to the Hebrews was written to, which means it's time to ask what we always ask. What are you going to do about it? Two things. First, if God is speaking, and one of the ways we put Jesus first in our lives is by making his voice first, then the obvious action step is to be a listener. Are you listening to God actively, intentionally, attentively? Are you making it a priority to daily seek and hear God's voice? Two of the basic ways we do that are spending time daily in Scripture and spending time daily in conversation with God in prayer. And I know what some people can say is like, yeah, 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 Carl, Carl, I get that, I get that. But like, I've been being told from the time I was a kid to read my Bible and to pray to God daily. Like, I don't know, doesn't it get old or something? The best analogy I've got is uh, all of my kids are taking piano lessons. And on one of the first days of piano lessons, they learned the names of each of the keys on the piano. If you were to talk to the best concert pianist the world has ever seen, they still spend time on the exact same keys on the piano. Their depth of appreciation has grown each day over time, but the keys on the piano are the same ones. So it is with our knowledge of Scripture and our familiarity with God's voice in prayer. It might be what we teach kids at the youngest age of faith, but it will only get deeper and richer as we dive, as we dig into it consistently in our lives. If you want to be a listener, one of the great ways to do that is to fall in love with the voice of God. We listen to a lot of voices. We listen to the voices of commentators who speak uh, about economics and politics, who speak on the news about all sorts of things. We fall in love with the voices of authors or bloggers. We fall in love with the voice of our favorite musicians and artists and the songs they write. And all those words can be good and helpful. God can even speak to us through any one of those things. But the question is, whose voice do you love most? Is it the voice of the God who inspired all these words around us, or do we instead spend all of our time and attention listening to voices that will utterly, or ultimately, pass away? One of the ways I kind of thought about it, if God were to write you a letter, and there was no return address, and he didn't sign his name at the beginning or the end, and you were to pick it up and read it, this letter from God, Would you recognize his voice? Would you pray with me? God, it really is a a, a cacophony. There's just so much noise in the world around us. And we admit that on a lot of days, all we listen to is everything but your voice. But God, we ask now, I ask for myself, I ask for each and every one of us here, God, would you help us to learn to know the sound of your voice? And not just to know it, but God, help us to be people who fall in love with your voice and desire to hear it daily, more than we desire any other voice that speaks in the world, whether in time past or in present or in any of our days to come. 
pray this all in the name of Jesus, God's final word and the perfect image of your love and compassion for us. Amen.